You see, we're on a mission from God. And welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda The Q. Happy to welcome the lovely and talented Dory Griggs, who is, she's many, many things, but but primarily she's a chaplain. And she is also someone who went through the IDCC program that I have on digital leadership. And we met through who? I think originally when you came and spoke to the Islamic Speakers Bureau of Atlanta's leadership Yes. Yes. So through Samaya. Yeah. Yes. But we had also both attended the 2017 Facebook Community Summit, but we hadn't met there. That's right. That's right. So we move in very similar circles, I think. Yeah. 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 And through the wonders of Facebook, I found we had a number of mutual friends. Yeah. It was only a matter of time. Yeah. Right. It was destiny. Yeah, and you're one of those people, Dory, that, uh, because I'm socially just so introverted and awkward. I mean, I I do, like, public speaking and things, but it's, I have to psych myself up, and I'm so exhausted when I'm done, and you're one of those people that is just so easy to get to know, right? Like, you make it easy for us. Oh, that's nice to hear. (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is your chaplaincy training, but I think it's also your personality. Yeah, I'm a certified extrovert, too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Any kind of profile, uh, I'm way up there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good. It takes all kinds to make the world go round. And if, if we didn't have extroverts, I think most of us introverts would just sort of crawl into caves and <laughs> the, never repopulate the species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Most of my really good friends are introverts. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, we give each other a hard time. Okay. <laughs> well, I am not going to give you a hard time. Well, that's good. Yeah, well, my fellow- I can't promise that, but I'm going to try not to. That's all right. I can take it. Yeah. My fellow chaplain residents, I'll just put this right out there up front. When I was at the VA hospital here in Atlanta doing a a year-long residency, one of my fellow chaplain residents um, gave me the nickname of Forrest, as in Forrest Gump, because I meet people easily and I've just had the good fortune to meet some really interesting people. And she said it's like Forrest Gump meeting presidents and so forth. <laughs> so anytime someone brings up, well, does anyone know someone in this industry? Because I've been in Atlanta so long and in various positions before seminary and marketing and PR um, and in various fields, there's a high likelihood I know someone. Yeah. Or I know someone who knows someone. So, I feel um, like that's, um, I feel like they're like, that's how my mother-in-law was too. Like there are some people that are just that way. They're like, it's like six degrees of separation with everyone on the planet. Right, right. My parents, my, my, both my parents actually were that way. My father a little more so than my mother. Um, but they're, I grew up in New Jersey and they were born and lived their whole lives in New Jersey. And Mm -hmm. we couldn't go anywhere without my mother running into someone from Irvington high school where she went to high school. Wow. Like she was born in 1920. So how how long that was. And um, same with dad. He, he was in the Ford, 
dealership business in New Jersey and just knew a lot of people. And yeah. I think my sister and I both picked up that trait. She took it to make money. I took it and I, I pretty much guaranteed never to make much money in ministry. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Because you're, you're actually, uh, you're doing some really good work. And I'm, I hope we'll talk about that a little bit. But before we do, I have icebreaker questions for you. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. No, don't say, uh, what? <laughs> Come on, Dory. All right. You're, you're, you can do this. This is easy stuff. This is All easy. right. Okay. So the first question is, what is the last thing you watched on television? Let me see. I watched, I don't even know the name of it. It's some new holiday movie just because I was baking cookies and Aww. I like, like to have holiday things on as I bake cookies. So whatever you know, boy meets girl, mm -hmm. there's some kind of conflict. Oh, there was one Christmas night. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's K-N-I-G-H-T. Oh. So a night time travels and falls in love. And Oh, for heaven's sake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> lots, lots of suspension of belief and all of that into these stories, but it was fun fluff to I didn't have to pay close attention as I was baking my cookies. So. Yes. Yes. Well, the important question here is what kind of cookies were you baking? Let's see. I made several kinds. There's a ginger spice cookie that makes the house smell wonderful. Nice. It's not gingerbread. It's lighter than that. Uh -huh. And then um, there's, my mom called them horseshoe cookies, but they're pretty much a pecan melt away mm. cookie. Oh my God. That's really yummy. Um, like butter, flour, sugar, and nuts. That's pretty much what goes into those cookies. That sounds great. Yeah, real health food. <laughs> and then there's a mint meringue cookie that wow. some people call it divinity, but it's basically you make meringue with sugar in it and put mint chocolate chips. And you heat the oven up for about half an hour, and then you turn the oven off and put the cookie sheets in and just leave them. Oh, like wow. it's usually something you make the last thing you make of the day because uh -huh. you can put them in the oven and go to bed and then get up in the morning and they're all crispy. Wow. You're like a cookie making fool. Yeah. It's just something, my little thing, no matter what happens, I have to bake those cookies in December leading up to Christmas. Helps me get into the Christmas spirit. I Basically, I've lived away from my nuclear family for most, when I went to college at 17, I didn't live at home again, mm -hmm. um, just because I had opportunities. And so I've had to make family and traditions for mm -hmm. myself. And that's just part of my December traditions. I have to find a day. And yesterday I had a whole day, so I just baked away. Wonderful. <laughs> Okay, so the second icebreaker question I have for you is, what is the last book that you read? The last book, actually, I reread the Harry Potter series. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I figured we're kind of living in this dystopian time. <laughs> and rereading those books, um, I read each one as they were released originally. Mm -hmm. yep. So it had been years since I had read them, but reading about dark lords and <laughs> yes, evil people and deceit and so yeah. forth seemed rather relevant to what we've been going through. <laughs> so, wow. And it was a good escape. Yeah. Little, little fantasy is good, good for the soul. I could not agree more. 
Okay, and then finally, your third question is, what did you eat for breakfast today? I had oatmeal and fresh strawberries Ooh. and Earl Grey tea. Well, you know how to live, Dory Griggs. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Just pull out the stops. Well, my one of the unexpected pleasures of 2020 was learning new recipes. And mm -hmm. I found a, a friend of ours who's a photographer, has a wife who makes incredible things. And he posted a picture of a Dutch baby pancake one time Ooh, yes. this spring. And I'd never heard of them. So I Googled it and saw that it was pretty easy to make. And that's been kind of my Saturday morning mm -hmm. treat to have with fresh fruit. So, yep. um, Oh, they're yeah. amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. I, I learned about them. I used to make them in high school and I can't remember. I think it was like one of my friend's moms used to make them and she gave me the recipe and it was such an easy recipe. And I used to make them all the time when I was a teenager. They're so good. Yeah, they're really good and so easy. Yeah. Um, and they look fancy, but yeah. they're not. So. Yeah. I, I always had mine with uh, like a, le a little squeeze of lemon and some powdered sugar on it. And it was, ugh delicious. Yeah, that's it. I, I use the powdered sugar and then some kind of fresh fruit. A friend of mine took the recipe and added a little lemon flavoring to it mm. and ate it with fresh blueberries. And she said Ooh. it was delicious. So, so that's been my um, treat for breakfast. Nice. I, you know what? I should make that this weekend. A mental note. I'm going to make that for yeah. this weekend. Um, okay. Well, the, you're, you're the kind of person I think I could talk to you about any number of interesting things, but I, I guess what I want to start off with is your kind of trajectory into chaplaincy, um, because I think it's such an interesting story of where you, where you came from and the, you know, point in your life when you decided this is what you wanted to do. So how did you end up being Dory Griggs' chaplain? Well, it's a windy road, which mm -hmm. <laughs> most good stories start off with <laughs> right. long, long time ago. See, originally, I went to college at University of Richmond, and I majored in public speaking, and I was the first woman to manage the men's basketball team wow. at the University of Richmond in the late 70s. It's pretty awesome. And yeah, it was just I didn't set out to be the first one. It was just something I wanted to do. And it just so happened I happened to be the first woman to do it there at the University of Richmond. Then I was also in the chapel choir that they had. And I started feeling tugs towards seminary. Just had a lot of questions and I wanted to study. And I thought that would be the thing to do. But my mom said, you have a strong trajectory towards sports PR and management that it seems that the church needs active lay people, and that seemed to make sense. So I stayed in sports. So the broad brushstrokes are in my 20s. I still worked in and around sports, professional tennis, minor league baseball. We won the International League pennant when I was with the Richmond Braves in 1982. That was fun. I eventually ended up in the hotel business getting sports accounts to stay at the hotel. And then I ended up marrying my first husband. We moved around a bit and ended up in Atlanta in 85. And here I did some different marketing and PR related things. And I kept, I volunteered at Georgia Tech athletic events in the press box because that's what they recognized my background. And I knew how a press box operated. 
So somewhere along in there, I started working for a church retreat center in the metro Atlanta area. And those tugs and questions started coming back. And I started asking questions of the seminary professors who would come to the retreat center and that they had retreats. And a few years of asking questions, I ended up applying and, and attending Columbia Theological Seminary. And somewhere along in there, I went through a divorce from my first husband and then met my current husband in the press box at a Georgia Tech game and started seminary. And while I was in seminary, my husband now, Stanley, is a professional photographer and he was in a group um, at the time it was called Christians and Photojournalism. And yeah. he's, he started his own group called Focus. It's Fellowship of Communicators Uniting Socially. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Focus. Wow. F O. CUS. Um, and they, before the COVID, they'd meet quarterly, physically get together. And since COVID, every Friday, he has a Zoom call with photographers from all over the world and to support each other because they, they've been hit like everyone else. But he had this network of photographers, and I started taking pastoral care classes and realized that journalists, all journalists, could use support. Mm -hmm. um, because what they see is so can be so awful, especially breaking news, war and natural disasters are exposed the journalists to horrendous things. And they're not really given any training on how to deal with that in journalism school. So I developed a model of chaplaincy to journalists while I was at Columbia. And to my surprise, it really was well received by yeah. a, a wide swath of people. So um, that's kind of broad brushstrokes, how I uh -huh. took the marketing PR and people skills and ended up directing it to, I was drawn to chaplaincy from the beginning because it's a ministry of presence to people of all faiths or no faith at all. Uh -huh. You're just present for people and help them. So, but did um, that, I mean, cause you said that, you know, one of the reasons why you were kind of called to that was your own questioning. And so I guess, you know, one of the things I worry about is that chaplains don't actually have people <laughs> chaplaining them. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Uh, and that, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where you, you're so focused on doing this kind of work that that is very practical and in the trenches that you may not have the time to explore in other really deep ways. So I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about how you're able to while you're ministering to the needs of people, very immediate, very immediate, very human, very emotional needs of people, you're also able to explore your own spirituality. How do you hold that kind of tension? Because you can't do, I don't know, can you do both at the same time? Well, it's a good question. And, it, and one early on, when I was in seminary, I came to seminary in 1995. My mom had died in 1989 my dad died in 1993 mm -hmm. so by the time i started um in 1995 i was 35 and had gone through losing both my parents and going through a divorce so i don't think i could do what i do now back then i was yeah. kind of a jumble of emotions 
and it took me seven years to get a three-year degree. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> All the life that um, happened in between. There, there are really good reasons why it took seven, seven years, but um, I'm at a point in my life where I've gone through so many changes, and I know what was helpful to me, and I know what wasn't. Yeah. And I'm at a place where I can be fully present for someone who's struggling with something. And you do learn in training, especially the residency uh, that chaplains go through, it's called clinical pastoral education. Mm-hmm. And it's a highly structured educational year where you're working full-time as a chaplain, but you have at least 10 hours a week of education requirements and meetings and processing your feelings, um, interpersonal IPR mm-hmm. is what it's called. You get together and you just talk about anything and you say whatever you feel. But through that process, you learn how to take care of yourself as you're caring for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some days that were particularly difficult. There was one where there were two deaths, one right mm-hmm. after the other in the surgical ICU area. One, one of the deaths involved a veteran who had teenage children. And you don't see that a lot in, in veterans hospitals. Yeah. The children, I mean, you don't yeah, see children. Right. And having a daughter who is a sophomore in high school at that time, around the same age as the two girls that were there, that was a tough one. And it was followed by a death of a a veteran who, totally different situation. He was much older. It was something, a situation where death almost came as a relief because of his medical situation was so difficult that the family was really okay that he was not in pain any longer. Mm-hmm. But having those two things in one day, I just knew those days I, on the way home, I let the family know that I've had had a day. I'm going to need mm-hmm. some quiet time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I'm glad, you know, I, I know that you have a good support system at home and you've had the the proper training. I'm also curious, though, about the other piece, which I guess it's because as I've gotten older, I've found that my spirituality and my commitment to religion has waxed and waned. I, those are both two different, very, very different things, right? My spirituality, I consider something separate from re- my religious practice, but they both are kind of, they both have some kind of connection, but they're not constants, right? They really aren't for me. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they're not. So I'm curious because do you feel like there are times when you're just not feeling it? Like you're like, well, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, because you, you know, I mean, there are things that happen in your life with your psychology and your relationships and you, you may not be feeling it a hundred percent, but in your job, you have to go and provide still the same level of support for people who need to hear certain things from a chaplain. Yes. And personally, you know, I've had, this up and down relationship with formalized church, I'm lifelong Presbyterian, cradle Presbyterian, mm-hmm. but I'm not ordained by the Presbyterian church. I'm ordained now by the Federation of Christian Ministries, mm. a really neat group. I find personally that I always have a relationship with God, the universe, whatever the force, <laughs> whatever you'd want to call the higher power. Mm-hmm my relationship with organized religion isn't so constant. 
I've had periods of my life where I've gone on what I call ecclesiastical vacations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like that. <laughs> I just need to, to not be engaged directly. Um, there was a professor, um, Dr. Thomas Tangaraj, who taught world religions at Candler Seminary here at Emory University. And he, used, he talked about a, a, a state of um, holy homelessness. Hmm. Yeah, where at one point he wasn't connected. I can't remember his whole story, but I remember that phrase because it resonated with me for different reasons than his. I just have always felt connected to God, but to the structures, I've had some wrestlings. Yeah. Um, well, and also there's a reason why, like in almost every, like every prophetic tradition involves this central character kind of wandering at some point. Right. Right. And there's a reason for that. Like, I do think there's a reason for that. Yeah. As one of my friends here in Atlanta, um, pretty active in the interfaith community in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And Judy Marks is um, one of my friends and she has a theory. She said, every religion, it, there was a sky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, well, most religions, you can sum it up by saying, see, there was this guy, <laughs> and this guy did this or that, or taught this or that, um, which I thought was fun yeah. way to, to think of it, because it pretty much is that way for most religions. And I, I at a seminary, I produced an interfaith dialogue television show for a couple of years oh. for a nonprofit called Faith in the City. It was founded by Andrew Young and James Laney, former ambassadors, and after a couple of years of compiling panelists of all different faith systems, the Abrahamic traditions, but also Baha'i and um, Hindu and Buddhist and free thought society folks came on at different points. And I realized after listening talk about all kinds of current events from their particular traditions that we don't vary in the big things very much, how to live in society, how to treat like the widows and orphans, mm-hmm. charity, um, kindness, yep, or threads that run through every major world religion. And it didn't vary so much. I tell people, you know, we all love our children. Mm-hmm. You know, if nothing else, you can start there with, if you have different ideas on just about any subject, you can usually connect on, we love our children. <laughs> yeah, I think I had another conversation earlier today with somebody who does this kind of work around bringing people together across differences. And, you know, you have uh, in your position, like as a chaplain, you don't pick and choose who you serve based on their politics or, or even their religion, right? Like you're there in the same way that a doctor is. If somebody needs help, you're there to help. It's very humanitarian. And I wonder I wonder why that's so hard to do for all of us, right? Like, and not, I mean, yes, you have had chaplaincy training, but there's something that I think you're predisposed to as a person where you're okay with that. Like a lot of people right now, I feel like they are ready to draw some lines, right? They, they don't want to even bother helping or talking to people that they think are going to disagree with them on certain issues. And you're like, 
I'll, I'll help anybody because that's what I do. And it's not just a job for you. This is the kind of person you are. And I wonder what, what it is that motivates that or that, that drives that in you. And, and how do we sprinkle some of that around? Because I, I feel like it's really missing. Well, one thing that really helped me, well, part of my process in seminary is my life before I was 35, I had a ton of change really fast. Mm-hmm. And you do those inventories of most stressful things in your life. Yeah. And my numbers were off the chart. (laughs) Just um, as far as stress goes. Yeah. And I did a lot of studying before going to seminary on all kinds of things. What was, gosh, I guess it was in the late 80s. New age was a term that people use, metaphysical. Oh, yeah so forth. So I, I did a lot of reading in those, those realms. And then I got to seminary and, and the change and change theory just kept coming up. Mm-hmm. So I ended up qualifying for an honor study and it was helping people through change. And I think what we're seeing, you know, in the divisiveness is people being afraid of everything changing so quickly. Mm-hmm that one of the default mechanisms in, in change is to go to the familiar. Yeah. And I think that's what brings people back. But I guess I'd gone through so much change that I finally let go of the illusion that I had control over anything at all. And it was so freeing (laughs) to come to that conclusion. I went through a divorce, moved out of a townhouse that we had, bought together and moved into an apartment with like a bed for me and a dresser and a mattress for the boys and not much else. They were mm-hmm. very, very minimal. And within a month, the apartment, the two bedroom apartment was filled with all the needs, but then some nice things like a stereo and a TV and some other things that weren't necessities. Yeah. But I realized going through a process of letting go of a whole lot was actually the most freeing thing I could do. Yeah. And I'm not afraid of a lot of things anymore mm-hmm. where I used to be the type that I had an agenda and I had plans and knew, you know, weeks out what was going to happen. And then a bunch of stuff happens that you have absolutely no control over. <laughs> and <laughs> It helps you. There, there was actually um, part of my story is a, a friend who worked for a fundraising organization here, Cox Curry and Associates. She's also Presbyterian, and she invited me to a women's retreat at her church called Embracing the Change That Confronts You. Because mm-hmm. she knew I was going through a divorce. I was looking at starting seminary. Um, she knew about my parents dying. And it just seemed to fit. And that kind of started, it just went along with all the other things and redirected my path um, to not sweating the small stuff and Mm -hmm. it's all small stuff. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And it's a very freeing place to be. It's also um, because of what I did after seminary, working in the interfaith community and so forth, getting to know Samaya Khalifa who founded the Islamic Speakers Bureau of Atlanta, and we just became friends. And mm-hmm. so for the past five years, I've been working with Samaya and the Islamic Speakers Bureau, which tends to confuse a whole lot of people. <laughs> they find that out because um, I present as 
you know, this middle-aged white mom in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Yes. Then, then I open my mouth <laughs> and talk about my friends and yeah. the people I, I run around with. And it just surprises people. I, I interviewed for a chaplaincy position part-time at a hospital. And one of the full-time chaplains said, I see on your resume here that you work for the Islamic Speakers Bureau. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because we had established, I graduated from a Presbyterian seminary and right. all the other things. So um, it ended up being a strength because in hospital work, you need all kinds of people from all uh -huh. different faith backgrounds or no faith background at all. Um, and it helps to know a little bit about different traditions because as a chaplain, you're not evangelizing your particular faith tradition, you're helping the person draw on their own traditions to yep. help them find hope in situations. Yep. And that also kind of uh, reminds me that we had, we had had this conversation, you know, along these same lines of you um, being, you know, this sort of middle-aged woman who who looks very, you know, sweet and bakes a lot of cookies. <laughs> and, and at the same time, you're really proficient with using online space for the kind of work that you want to do, right? Yeah, and, that really throws people off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you're really, like, that's how I know you is from the internet. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about the work that you do with the Citadel? Yeah, that was kind of an unexpected turn in the road. Um, my son, my oldest son, decided that he would wanted to go into the military mm -hmm. and decided that the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, was his top choice of school. And it scared me to death. Why? I, I'm not a military person uh, background at all. Yeah. And I, you know, I read stories about hazing and so forth at the Citadel and other military colleges. So it's just a scary thing to send yeah. a child to a military college. Um, when, for those who don't know, when you go to a military college, they give you a list of what you can bring. And it's basically undergarments and, bed <laughs> and bedding Yikes. and your toiletries, basic toiletries. Um, no civilian clothes your first year. Wow. At all. And the, there's specific types of things. And it's, for someone who's not military, it's all very daunting. Mm -hmm. And I learned a while back going through things that are scary and unusual. The way to make it less scary for me is to learn as much as I can about it. And then it's not as um, foreign anymore and it becomes more familiar. And to my surprise, I understood why they did certain things that seemed really unusual from the outside. Yeah. And I wrote down everything I learned his freshman year and became the chair of the Georgia Citadel Parents Group, an informal group we had here. Then um, by his senior year, I was invited to a series of meetings at the Carter Center Mental Health Journalism Program, Rosalind Carter's project at the Carter Center here in Atlanta. Nice. And it, and I met one of the fellows whose um, fellowship revolved around helping non-military people learn about what military life is like. Mm -hmm. And she asked me to blog for her. 
for her blog called Off the Base, uh, Bobby O'Brien with WUSF in Tampa, Florida, an NPR station. Mm -hmm. So my first response was, no, I'm not a writer. <laughs> I can get up and talk in front of thousands of people, but I, I'm not a writer. And then I thought about it overnight and the second day of the meeting, I said, okay, if you promise to be a, a gentle editor, I'll, I'll try this. So I blogged about starting with how it felt to be the mom of a high school student about to go to a military college on an army ROTC scholarship uh -huh. and basically covered the whole process through the four years of having a cadet there. And it's totally from the perspective of a parent of a cadet, because I'm not a cadet. I can't tell people how to be a cadet. Sure, sure. But I can tell parents <laughs> to make it a little less scary. And it turned out at one point, Bobby said that my entries got more hits than the other contributors. Wow. Which I contribute to the um, research skills of an anxious mm -hmm. parent. <laughs> <laughs> to find any kind of helpful information. Aww. So when he graduated, I thought I was done with all my involvement at the Citadel. And as we all know, blogs have a forever lifespan. So yeah. people continued to Google and find my blogs and then my email was attached to it. So they started emailing me and it just became easier to start a Facebook group for new parents in 2012 for the class of 2016 because all new parents had the same questions yeah so um i did that invited a few friends who were had cadets had just graduated so that there was no it's an odd dynamic in the military and in military schools sometimes in the military spouses will take on kind of the rank of their their significant other in like spousal groups how interesting it doesn't happen all the time but that can happen yeah and you find it in military schools, some parents are so proud of their kids that they take on more authority based on their kids' rank, uh huh, <laughs> cadet rank. Yep. And having parents of upper class cadets in Facebook groups with first year parents can be really intimidating. And some people can be, as we all know, the internet isn't always a nice place. <laughs> what? Some, <laughs> and you know, some people are helpful. They're generally helpful and they want to help other parents. But then you've got other people who would give these anxious, usually moms, but there are some anxious dads out there too, a hard time for asking basic questions. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's why I had just parents of graduates advising new parents. So there was none of that weird power thing going on. Yeah. And apparently it worked because each year people ask me to keep it going and it, I, I did this for seven years the last group that I formed was the class of 2022 and then the school decided they wanted to take over the parent outreach mm -hmm. um, and I've been in touch with the associate provost at the Citadel helping them behind the scenes explaining how I how and why I did certain things and they're making changes which is fine it's theirs now but it's was a worthwhile thing. It was also very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't think people fully understand the amount of labor that goes into managing an online community like that. Yeah, they, they really don't. And some of it was kind of, I tell, tell people it's kind of like mean girls and PTA uh -huh. on steroids. Yep. Combination of that. 
can happen and at the, on the opposite are some very rich and long lasting friendships that developed. Uh-huh. And it's just a matter of balancing all of that. But I, I, in that very small world, you know, there's only what about 2,300, 2,400 cadets um, at the Citadel. So it's the size of my daughter's high school, but it's people from all over the country and all over the world that go to the Citadel and the parents are all over and from all different backgrounds. And as I said, it can be very rewarding. And that's where the chaplaincy training came in into play Mm -hmm. that I was not putting myself out there as the only authority, but someone that I've learned about the mindset and why they do certain things. And I can help parents through those anxious times. And some people leave and some people stay. It's not a place for everyone. There's not one way to be a cadet and helping parents support their kids was what my intention was. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, I think that you do learn, I mean, from my, my own experience doing this kind of thing, you learn a lot about human nature when you run a community like that online. And you also see marked differences between how people conduct themselves online and offline. Yes. And I wonder if you want to expand on that a little. <laughs> uh, well, there were some things, there, there was a particularly difficult year, I guess about two, three years ago. Some things were happening and it seemed like it was spiraling out of control. So I just archived all the groups because I needed a timeout. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And something I mean I had executive committee people from the school calling me and so forth. It was just too much for me to to handle that day. Yeah. And then some um started posting and sending me messages that it's not fair that I archive the groups. They need access to them. You know, uh-huh. they by that time they had ownership, felt yep. ownership in the community that was built there. And I really appreciated just a handful of people who were concerned about me and sent me messages that day. So after a long conversation with the associate provost about what was going on, I recruited some volunteers from the, each group to serve as admins and moderators and formed a team and then had, nice. had a private group where we could all, the admins from all the groups that I had started would be there. And I've added staff on campus so they could advise and let us know what they need information to put out. So I developed that structure and then went back online. But during that 12 hour period, groups started popping up by people who were angry at me Oh, for archiving the group. And then some friends who were good friends of mine were added to those groups and were appalled at some of the things they heard people saying about me, people I don't know in real life. Mm and the assumptions that were made and wow i mean from the really absurd like i'm just doing it for the money um (laughs) there is no money (laughs) there is no money Um, (laughs) of all the things that's like the most absurd thing anyone can say about community management (laughs) right right and then one parent even said that oh she doesn't have to worry about money her husband's a photographer all right (laughs) because the the thing with my husband after while my son was there Uh he didn't sell the images he took he gave them to people wow and he gave them to the school Mm -hmm. 
he went and shot football games on the sidelines and then would give them a DVD with all the images on it. Wow. So there are all these misconceptions out there and you can't, I had to learn, and that's where going through the residency at the, the VA really helped me learn how to process some of this because they didn't know me. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and I, and I don't know them and I don't give credence to stuff and you, you start to understand and sympathize with the the celebrities who were written up in tabloids right <laughs> and, and, and it, it's a really small little world a little taste of that and yeah you you learn to to put things in their proper place oh for sure anyone who's ever had who's ever been a victim of this kind of dogpiling online right automatically like walks away from that knowing that 90% of what you read online is bullshit. Right. Like, like you, you can't, like you can't take anything seriously after that. Cause you're just like, I know how, what kinds of things people said about me that were so bizarre and off, you know, just ridiculous that now when I see people talking about anything or anyone else in that way, I'm just like, okay, what you don't know anything. Like right. you just can't take it seriously. Well, that's where the IDCC really helped too. Um, because Gosh, it seems like ages ago, but it, we just finished up in what February or March of this year. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it started pre-COVID, and then we ended like right at the beginning of, of all the the lockdown stuff. Because I was in Hawaii in February. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on a couple of the calls uh, where my husband was teaching, but I remember conversations we had about that that. Um, some people in the group were trying, I can't remember, and it, it's not important who, were wrestling with people online saying inaccurate stuff mm-hmm. and wanting to correct them. And I just walk away from those things. Yeah, yeah. There's really not much you can do. I, and that, I think that goes to uh, what you were talking about earlier, the wisdom of having had your ass run over by life a few times, is right. that you just, you, you just it, it becomes easier and easier to come to peace with all of the ridiculousness. Right. right. <laughs> to know that you have no control over anything really and, and just be okay with it and just keep going. Yeah, it's so important to remember that that about the only thing you can control is your reaction to mm-hmm. something. Yep. And once you get the, that perspective, there, there's something very freeing about saying you're going to be you. And if someone doesn't like it, you know, tough, it's not like you're going to go out and be a jerk to everyone and then tough, but <laughs> if you're coming from a good place and someone misinterprets that, that's on them. Yeah. Yep. That's the thing. And the reality is that you, you can't make people believe like you often, if the more you try to like, try to convince people that you're not a terrible person, they're going (laughs) to think you're a terrible person. So it just kind of works against you to even try, which is not to say that you should just rest on your laurels and be a terrible person. But the thing is like any mature person, you know, intellectually, spiritually mature person grapples with themselves all the time right and and if they have a relationship with a higher power they have to deal with these questions in their own mind of am i doing the right thing am i the right person blah 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 you don't need the consensus of the internet for that right if you're an adult <laughs> you're already kind of you know dealing with trying to figure that out so the whole idea that we somehow need to pass 
uh, I don't know, some kind of public approval process to go about our business is just, you know, that it's not true. And I, <laughs> I'm not going to even pretend that it's true. Yeah, well, that's, I really feel after going through everything I did earlier in my life, you check your motivations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll ask myself, I'll look internally and say, what was my part in this? And sometimes I can say, it's not me, it's them. Other times it's like I screwed up and there's a real power in saying I screwed up and telling yeah. someone you screwed up instead of trying to know it wasn't me or lie your way out of something. Um, it, it's that's also very freeing if you've made a mistake to own up to it. And people, everybody makes mistakes. And it's amazing how forgiving people are if you're honest with them and sincerely apologetic if you've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. The other thing I've learned, because I find myself in circles that tend to be more male-dominated fields, early on it was sports. Ministry has historically been male-dominated. Yeah. I'm now the chaplain for the fire rescue department here in Roswell, Georgia, and I'm the first woman chaplain. And wow. our department is mostly male. There, We have a handful of women who are, are firefighters and work in the fire marshal's office and uh, in the office, but it's pretty male dominated. And having gone through everything that I did earlier in my life, it's interesting how it prepares you for where you are now. Mm -hmm. So I know I have the education and training to be a really good fire chaplain. And I'm sure there are people in the department who kind of looked sideways when I first started and they weren't used to having someone who was called to be a chaplain. They've the model that's pretty common in public safety chaplaincy is to have someone serve as chaplain who's either a congregational minister or they're a firefighter and very active in their church and they uh -huh. get chaplain added on. So it's a different way to come at chaplaincy. I'm I'm trained the more traditional way to to work in hospitals where you have your master of divinity degree a, a year-long residency in clinical mm -hmm. pastoral education um, that type of path is what i have so i started showing up and doing ride-alongs and after this is i'm in the middle of my fourth year now they started seeing that if i'm at a fire scene there's actually things I do while they're putting out the fire that help shorten the time that they have to be on site because I've already started talking to the families yeah. and the people affected. So by the time the fire's under control and the battalion chief starts talking to the family, they've already called the insurance company and they've already called family members that they can stay with and that type of thing. Uh -huh. So um, you just go forward knowing you know, if you're in a position and you're the minority in that position, but you're trained and you know your stuff, you just claim that and go on. And sooner or later, if you're competent, people will see that. You'll always have the naysayers like you do online, but you can't let those people keep you from what you're, in my case, called to do. Yeah, that is a lot of wisdom, Dory. And I, I think, I wish I'd had you tell me that, you know, 20 years ago. I wish I'd had somebody tell me that 20 years ago, because uh, it's been hard as a, you know, as a woman and just as, as a person trying to make my way in the world without a lot of confidence and feeling um, like I, I, I had to convince people of my calling or what I 
am so you know what I'm good good at. Yeah. Um, but also, you get to ride on fire trucks, which is fucking amazing. <laughs> what? It is. It is really cool. It yeah. is. Um, That's like every little kid's dream. I, I I asked one of the guys early on uh, the ride-alongs. One of the the fellows who'd been around for a long time, and he's about my age, and I said how long did it take you to not have the butterflies in your stomach when the alarm goes off? <laughs> because, yeah, you know, you're on this hyper alert thing and it, it takes, you know, a couple of years to not have that. You, you always have a little bit of an edge. Yeah. And this is where my worlds collided because doing ride alongs, I realized there's a lot of similarities between traveling with sports teams and being with a fire station. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Ride alongs. Um, uh, here we have seven stations, man, twenty-four-seven, and a cup. I usually do ride alongs at the the couple larger ones, so you can have up to eight firefighters on a shift, and they eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. They have bunk rooms in the fire station. I usually work a twelve, go in, along for a twelve-hour shift, like from mm -hmm. eight to eight at night, or later if there's an incident, I stay till it's completed but they eat together they'll talk trash to each other someone's always checking their language chapel's here <laughs> but, but they'll they'll joke and you'll get in the vehicle the engine the truck the rescue vehicle and they're still talking trash and joking but as soon as they get to the scene it's game face yeah they're out of the the vehicle and doing what they they need to do to plug into the chain of command mm -hmm. and it's very similar to being at a pregame meal with athletes a lot of trash talking and so forth goes on early pregame meals but they get on the court and it's all business yep wow. very similar dynamics wow thor you're so interesting to me <laughs> i could talk to you for a long long time uh this is just a great conversation and i I'm so glad that you've stuck with the things that you're passionate about and that you believe in and that you are, you didn't at any point when you really could have, you didn't let yourself get discouraged and, and turned away from your calling or your multiple callings because you're just doing such great things now and the world needs you and they need people like you. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've been a great encouragement over the, since I've met you and it's really been helpful. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased to call you a friend and a colleague. Well, thank you. All right. Yeah, mutual admiration league here. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Let's start a Facebook group. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I will talk to you again soon, I hope, and, and please do come back on a future episode. Thank you so much. Don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.